Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. In 1973, nearly 50 years ago, the United States Supreme Court conjured a right to abortion in the Constitution, short-circuiting the democratic debate then ongoing in the states about whether to legalize pregnancy terminations and, if so, under what circumstances. Roe v. Wade tore the country apart, launching the pro-life movement into national prominence, resulting in decades of committed democratic engagement and advocacy among abortion opponents to reverse road and return the struggle over the right to life to the democratic sphere. That decades-long effort bore fruit in the just-decided Dobbs v. Jackson that will go down in the history books as the case that overturned Roe v. Wade. But what happens now? With the federal courts officially neutral on abortion, How will the pro-life movement seek to achieve its stated goal of convincing the entire country that life should be protected and respected from conception to natural death? I thought I would ask one of the foremost pro-life advocates in the country. Catherine Glenn Foster is a lawyer and president and CEO of Americans United for Life. Foster has testified before various congressional committees and advised federal and state bodies and representatives. She's an experienced keynote speaker and has spoken throughout North America, Europe, and Australia on legal and life-related issues, including debates and lectures at legal seminars on philosophy, political theory, history, constitutional jurisprudence, and public policy analysis. She and her work have appeared extensively in national media and have received awards, including one for an article on human rights relating to embryo adoption. Foster earned her J.D. at Georgetown University Law Center. She's admitted to the bar in Virginia and Washington, D.C., as well as the United States Supreme Court and various U.S. Courts of Appeals. She is a senior fellow in legal policy at the Charlotte Lozier Institute and a fellow with the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. Catherine, welcome to Humanize. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for being here. What got you interested in the abortion debate and other right-to-life issues? Uh, well, you know, abortion was personal for me before it was political. Um, when I was 19 years old, I had an abortion. And um, it, it, it's hard to imagine um, a more traumatic experience. Um, when I was 19 years old, I I had known pro-life people. I grew up in a pro-life family. But we hadn't really discussed abortion, what it was, what the law was, nothing. 
And so when I found out that I was pregnant in the health center of my, um, of my little college campus, I didn't know where to turn. They didn't offer any resources, any help, any information. Um, they just sent me on my way. Uh, who, who is they? Is this the college? The, the college, the, um, the health center. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The, the employees there, the staff, I had gone in because, um, because I, I thought I had a cold or flu or, you know, some kind of illness and, um, and they were going to give me some medicine for it. And they said, before we give you this medicine, you know, I guess it, there's some kind of, you know, counterindication with, um, with pregnancy. So they said, let's just make sure you're not pregnant. And I'm 19 years old. I think I'm invincible. <laughs> um, I said, you know, no one's ever had me take a pregnancy test before. Of course I'm not pregnant. And they said, well, just, you know, go ahead and, and take it just to be sure. And so, um, and so I did, and it came back positive and, um, and I just, I, I didn't even know how to react. Um, I don't think the, the nurses, the staff there knew how to react either. Um, there was something in their eyes where I could see that they kind of wanted to say something, but maybe felt like they couldn't, or I, I don't know, something was stopping them, it seemed, but they didn't, they didn't provide, you know, information on, okay, you know, you're not the first one. Um, I'm sure I wasn't, you know, they didn't say anything like, okay, here's, you know, what your options are. Here's what housing could look like and classes and, you know, and all these kinds of, you know, meal plan, all these kinds of, um, of needs. Instead, they just said, if you need to call someone, here's a phone. And so I called my, um, boyfriend at the time and, um, and he didn't really provide any, any help or answers. And so I, I went back to my dorm room and Googled, you know, pregnant, what do I do? And, you know, now what comes up are pregnancy centers, um, which is wonderful. But at the time, what mm -hmm. came up were abortion facilities. And so I didn't really know what to do. I had no real plan, but I just, um, I made an appointment to go in for that Saturday. It wasn't even an abortion appointment. It's just, you know, let's, let's go and find out, you know, what's, what's, you know, what the options are. And so I made an appointment for, you know, four or five days later. And, and I knew it had to be soon because I, I was already kind of bonding, you know, just once you have that knowledge, once you know, you're a mom, it, it changes everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I went in and I, wow. I wanted answers. You know, I, I wanted to see the ultrasound that they did. Cause you know, they have to do an ultrasound to figure out what method to use and make sure you're, you know, the right gestational age and make sure it's not an ectopic pregnancy. And I said, you know, can I, can I see the ultrasound? And they said, no. Um, they just shuffled me along, you know, this assembly line process. I'm asking questions. They didn't answer any of my questions. Um, just next step in the assembly line. And then um, finally, I was on the table um, feeling really unsure. Everything in there just, it felt wrong. And I changed my mind and tried to get up and leave, um, but they wouldn't let me and um, ended up, you know, performing a forced abortion. Yeah. Yeah. When people who support abortion say that you don't understand what it's like to have an unexpected pregnancy, they can't say that about you. No, I know exactly what it's like. I know what it's like to have a pregnancy at an extremely inconvenient time. I'm an only child of a, a then single mom. She's since happily remarried, but, um, but I felt very, um, very protective. You know, I, I, I didn't want to, 
to let her down. I'm the only grandchild, right? (laughs) There was a lot on my shoulders. I I knew the, the mantle that I carried. And so the idea that I'd been doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And then here were the consequences that could derail um, future plans. Not that I had a whole lot at that point. I'm 19 years old. Um, I didn't have everything mapped out yet, but, um, but nonetheless, I knew that I was, I was called to something. And so the idea that, um, that I'd let her down, I, I just, I couldn't imagine seeing the disappointment in my mom's eyes. And so I just kind of went along. It, it sounds to me also like mm-hmm. there was no support for you in terms of a different choice. You were treated um, kind of in a dehumanized fashion at the abortion clinic. Mm-hmm. Your boyfriend did not say, oh, let's see what we can do to make sure this works. Yeah. You were worried about uh, your family's reaction. And so did do you feel like you were kind of pushed in a particular direction? Absolutely. Um, less than a lot of people, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've, I've talked with counseled, represented women who were in similar forced abortion situations and some who were in, you know, abusive and, and even more coercive situations. But, you know, every abortion is a story the, uh, of a failure somewhere along the line. In some way, something has, has let this woman down so that she, um, so that she ends up thinking that that's the only choice or the right choice. In my case, um, you know, I didn't know that there were other resources. I didn't know that there were other options and it felt like that was the only choice left or available. I I had no idea that I could, I could continue in school. I, I was going to a little, you know, Christian liberal arts school for the most part. And so I I didn't know anyone who was, you know, who was pregnant or who had left for a semester or anything like that. It just, uh, I I didn't know. It also strikes me that uh, this proves the lie that is often said about pro-life people, that they don't have empathy for the women who find themselves pregnant uh, in an unexpected circumstance. That's absolutely accurate. Yeah, I, I have nothing but empathy because I've been there. Um, I've walked in their shoes. And so every every model bill that we draft, everything that we do or say, I'm thinking about that woman. In fact, I was just talking with a reporter the other day and, um, and something that she said just really weighed on my heart. And the more I thought about it, I, I ended up contacting her again. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about the women in these circumstances. I think we need to make sure that we're protecting them um, in every way possible. So um, so I, I, I have just so much connection with the women because I do know, I recognize as lawmakers have for hundreds of years, um, that women are the second victim here. And going back to your last question, even just really quickly, I, I do feel like I didn't have choice and like I didn't have support. I will say that in the case of um, at least my family, uh, my mom, it's because I didn't even give her the opportunity to support me um, because yeah. I didn't trust yeah. her and our relationship enough. Now, a month later after the abortion, you know, it, it, leaving that clinic was incredibly hard because I I just I knew it was the last time I'd ever be in the same place as my child. Wow! And I just it it killed me. Um, you feel that pain. You feel you feel the loss. Do you feel there's an attempt on the part of people who are not 
pro-life to downplay the emotional impact of abortion on women? I think there absolutely is. Yeah, I've done research. I've written on the all the the various sequelae. There, there's, you know, physical, there's emotional, there's psychological, there's spiritual. It impacts every part of you, in many cases for the rest of your life. Um, and, and so, you know, what they do is, you know, sometimes they'll put a little journal out where you can write your thoughts in the, in the recovery room, something like that. That's nowhere close to enough. That doesn't, that doesn't even scratch the surface of what's needed. Yeah. We need so much more. And in fact, um, so I, I, in part, I, I went through this process because I was afraid of, of being transparent, afraid of admitting what I'd been doing and, um, and the consequences. But a month later, I'm a mama's girl. Um, I told my mom anyway, because how could I keep something that big from her? Yeah. And she was so understanding. She was so loving. Um, she was sad. She was very sad for me, but she was just so loving. And so um, she got me into counseling. She um, She helped me deal with all of that. I'm so grateful that I did eventually trust her with that information. Um, and I just, I think about the women who, who don't do that, um, who don't have someone that they can trust, or they just don't know, or they don't know where to go. They don't know where the resources, uh, the way I didn't before that abortion. So it's, um, I think about that a lot. I, I want to make sure that every woman has those resources because if you don't, you can end up with that hardness of heart. Um, you can end up, you know, there's there's so much that we can do to um, to kind of shield ourselves from the pain. Yeah. And um, and, and I just I, I want the best for for all women. And I want us to be able to to work through it, to do that hard work, and to heal. So this experience, it sounds like what you're saying uh, was searing. And that led you toward the kind of work that you are doing now. How did that occur? Yeah, it took a really long time. So my abortion was at 19. It wasn't until, you know, close to 10 years later that um, that I, I ended up going back to law school. And in the meantime, I was doing international work. I was doing all kinds of things. Um, but it, it just, it always stayed with me. Um, you could say that it, it haunted me. And so I was, uh, what, you know, 27, 28 years old, something like that. And it was just, it was on my heart. I ended up um, getting what, uh, what I can only call a, a calling to go to law school. And, um, and actually, actually, it was first a calling to take the LSATs. Um, I had some, some legal history in my family, you know, great uncles who were judges. Um, grandfather went to law school whatever, you know, it was always sort of a, a, a possibility for me. You come from a lawyer family. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but not strong, you know, it, it was a couple of generations back. Um, and so, and so I didn't really have a specific passion for it or desire for it, but I just got this calling, you know, take the LSATs. And so I went, I, you know, I showed up, I took it, you know, I, I came back home. I thought, okay, my job's done. <laughs> I took care of that, check that block. <laughs> And then, um, and then it just, it, again, it just weighed on my heart. No, you know, apply to law school next. And so, um, I applied and, uh, and got into Georgetown. I, I needed to stay local for family. Um, but I got into Georgetown and, um, and, and, and I didn't know why exactly I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Maybe be a prosecutor or something. I don't know. And then it was during orientation week and there was an orientation talk on healthcare law. 
and I did not know what healthcare law was. I assumed very wrongly that it had something to do with like, um, I, I know something very exciting. I, I know if you ever watched the TV show 24, Jack Bauer. Yeah. So that yes, was one I of my am. favorite shows. So I'm thinking healthcare law, that sounds like, you know, bioterrorism or something, you know, it's going to be a very exciting talk. And it was not <laughs> like, it was not an exciting orientation talk, but I'm sitting there in the front row and it just, it, it was just crystal clear to me. It just hit me that I was there in that room. I was there at law school in order to help women like me. Wow. To make sure that women wouldn't be in the same position that I was in, that they got the resources that they needed, that they got um, the choice that was lacking to me, um, and that and the children got a chance, um, the chance that mine didn't. Hmm. So um, from that point on, at this point, I did not know that there was a pro-life movement. Um, I was, I was kind of clueless. Um, I just thought, okay, I guess it's on me to convince America that abortion is bad. I had no idea. But a couple weeks later, I, I, I found out that there was a pro-life group on campus. I connected with them. They connected me with organizations. And um, and I just, a whole world opened up. I, I found out that there were millions of people standing for life, millions of people who believed the same way I did, who had either that experience and that regret or um, or just for, you know, religious or human rights reasons or whatever. They just recognized that there's a better way. And, um, and I didn't look back every course I, I could, I, I took a, a course where I could write a paper and all my papers were about abortion. Um, the professors knew this going in, they were like, okay, it's Catherine again. She's going to write a paper about abortion. Great. Um, so I was writing, you know, just countless pages, um, getting ready for this. Um, all the internships I did were on human rights, right to life issues. And, um, and still today, you know, I'm advocating for human rights, the human right to life. And it's because of what I had to live through. It's because of the cultural and legal indifference, um, to the ethical and, and the moral realities concerning abortion violence and, um, and, and the harm, the real harm that abortion inflicts on women and girls, um, but, you know, we, we actually, we, we do even more than that. We, we advocate for the entire spectrum of human right to life issues um, because they all matter. You know, abortion is right. kind of the preeminent issue. And it's right. the one that I have the most personal experience with. Um, but it's, it's not the only issue. It's, it's one issue on this, this whole spectrum of issues, um, a, a continuum of issues that addresses itself um, to the question of whether we're going to care for human persons, every human person, and uplift them at, um, at every stage, um, at every age and every circumstance, or if we're going to just embrace that toxic ideology that the U.S. Um, Constitution and that justice is incompatible with, um, with a killing power as a matter of law and policy. It's interesting. Um, the, one of the criticisms of pro-lifers is that they're supposedly hate-filled, but as I've experienced pro-lifers and listening to you, I think it's the contrary, at least for the most part, that it's the, the focus and the commitment is based on love. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's where I'm coming from, um, from the core of my being. I just, um, whether we're talking about the woman who is like me, Googling and trying to figure out what to do, or um, the young woman who's, you know, just received that test, um, or the partner or the family or, 
um, you know, all the people involved, even the the people who are, you know, working at the abortion facility and, and maybe don't want to be or don't know that there's a better option, um, you know, all the people out there, I just, um, people who are leading, you know, the pro-choice organizations, I, I just want to sit down with them, have a conversation, build the bridge. Um, in fact, uh, I, I was a couple years ago, you know, when the Nats won the World Series, I was, I was celebrating. Um, and I was, I, I was up on Twitter. I'm, I'm liking all the celebratory posts. And all of a sudden I realized I had just liked a post from the head of NARAL, um, one of the biggest you know, pro-choice organizations in the nation. And I, I, I paused for a second, like, oh goodness, I just liked a post from the head of NARAL. And then I thought, you know what? That's exactly what we want because, you know, we are, there's so much more than this. We can build the bridge. We can build the connection. Um, we want to have a relationship. I just want to like sit down with people and have a cup of coffee and, and have a conversation and, and just open up and be vulnerable and work together to find solutions. Um, because so much of what we've heard, even in the last week, it hasn't been solution oriented. It hasn't been, you know, uh, well, let's, let's work together to, to resource women. It's just been, okay, let's, you know, end the filibuster. Let's codify Roe v. Wade. Let's expand it. That's not what we need. Yeah. What we need yeah. is to get to the heart, to the root of the problems that women are facing, why they may choose abortion in the first place, which for the most part, we're talking about financial issues, relationship problems, and not feeling ready to be a parent, you know, all areas where we can come alongside a young woman and support her as a humane nation. That's what we're called to do. But, um, but, you know, no matter what is what she's facing in her life, no matter how bad the circumstances are, I just want to come alongside and, you know, get to know her, see what we can do to help and try to help encourage her to choose life. And that's something that we can do no matter what our legal regime is. Yeah, over the course of your career, I know you you did a lot of litigation on these kinds of issues and then became the head of Americans United for Life. Uh, d- describe that organization and its mission. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Americans United for Life, we have a simple mission, really, uh, to advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. Um, it's summed up in just a few words there, but it's on the other hand, it's a pretty big mission, right? Um, but, but we're America's first national pro-life organization. We were actually founded two years before Roe v. Wade. We were founded in 1971. And it was founded by Americans of all ages and backgrounds and beliefs. But they all just shared a common sense understanding of the human person and of constitutional justice. Uh, because our founders were animated by exactly the type of constitutional vision that the Supreme Court got so very wrong in Roe v. Wade. Um, but we've advocated for the human right to life in every U.S. Supreme Court case since Roe v. Wade, including Roe v. Wade. And we were just so very proud to be cited in the final Dobbs decision that overturned Roe. Um, we advocate for human life on the federal level, the state level, local levels. We work across all branches of government. We work with lawmakers who share our mission of advancing and uh, enshrining and upholding the human right to life in its fullness, which means um, not only legal protections and common sense prohibitions uh, against violence like abortion and outright infanticide and euthanasia and suicide, 
Um, but it also means affirmative protections and provisions for the women and the persons who need real care, uh, material care, resources, counseling, financial assistance, job training, um, but just anything that that leads to the capacity to thrive across the whole of a natural life. Um, because we really strive for the day to, to channel the words of the, the late Richard John Newhouse when all are welcomed throughout life, throughout life and protected in law. Uh, the primary focus is legal or is it political? Primary focus is legal. Yeah. So we don't get involved in elections um, or anything like that. You know, we're a C3, but we um, but we basically draft the model bills that states um, then go and try to pass. We help them adapt it um, if they don't just adopt it in full, but adapt it to their state um, legal system. Um, we help defend it. If it gets challenged in court, you know, we, we testify for it. We defend it. We educate the public on abortion and abortion law. Um, so it's all about, you know, the state houses, the courts and the public square. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in terms of criticism of the pro-life movement is, uh, you know, that it's supposedly it's a bunch of men trying to force women to do uh, what they don't necessarily want to do. But in my experience in, in, uh, in engaging with the pro-life movement, most of the leaders like you uh, are women. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, I'm honored to lead at Americans United for Life, and there are so many more. You look at National Right to Life, led by Carol Tobias, March for Life, led by Jeannie Mancini, um, Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, led by Marjorie Dannenfelser, Live Action, led by Lila Rose. Um, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and I don't know if you've seen this, actually, but, but Live Action has a hilarious satire video out, and it's called Abortion Rights Are Pro-Choice Men's Rights. Um, <laughs> Google that if you want a good laugh. It totally underscores the point you're making, that it's it's really men who have the clearest interest in abortion and use abortion um, not even to oppress women so much as to control us, manipulate us, um, discard us, uh, because abortion violence, it harms women, it kills our children, but it is useful to men who fear fatherhood. And in fact, there was an article on that, um, I don't know, a couple of few weeks ago where it was, um, it was written by a man and he said, well, here's the man's perspective. This is why my life would be turned upside down if abortion gets, you know, if Roe is overturned and, you know, and what happens if I have to change my sexual practices? Um, so really abortion is useful to men who fear commitment. It's useful to men who fear responsibility. It's useful to men in their teens, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and up who, you know, just don't feel ready. Um, it's useful for a culture that tells us that we never have to grow up and, and it's useful to truly oppress women. Um, and I'm speaking now explicitly about sex trafficking and sex slavery. You yeah. look at the, the, the porn that's available on demand on so many of our devices, it relies in part on international sex trafficking. It relies on sexual oppression and manipulation under the cover of liberty and freedom and choice. And you look at, you know, how many porn stars get pregnant? It would be the end for them. And they're already trapped in an industry that dominates them. And abortion provides a way out for pimps and agents and, and all those who have an interest in just using women as if we were playthings instead of free and equal in dignity and worth. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's toxic in so many, many ways. But, but I think there's something truly toxic, truly nefarious about the language that we hear in support of abortion 
from people saying that it's pro-lifers who want to oppress women because there is nothing more natural or more freeing than nurturing your baby, than, than welcoming a new human person into the world. And we were meant to do that together. And women and men, mothers and fathers, um, not to be oppressed, not to be gaslit, um, or not to be manipulated into abortion by men who would treat us as less than. And I think that's part of the reason why so many of the early feminists, like Susan B. Anthony, they opposed abortion. You know, they were strong feminists and they wanted the women's right to vote. They wanted, you know, equal rights for women, but they opposed abortion. That's why the New York Times back in the day opposed abortion because it was this radical idea that our future should be built on the backs of our children. Um, and then somehow over the, the decades and, and the centuries, really, um, it's, it's gotten perverted. Roe v. Wade uh, uh, created a, a uh, purported constitutional right to abortion uh, based on uh, the right of privacy. And even uh, people like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was uh, really pro-choice, thought that it was poorly conceived and poorly written. Uh, and and but it took fifty years to get that uh, case overturned in Dobbs v. Jackson. What did Dobbs say that uh, was different from what Roe said? It's, they came to obviously different conclusions. But what was the reasoning, real quickly, in Roe, and then the reasoning in Dobbs? Yeah, um, I mean, back with with Roe. I mean, you, you tell me what the uh, the basis of Roe is basically, you know, it, it's hard to, to figure out exactly, um, you know, what they were thinking there. Um, we know that because for, for 49 years, you know, we didn't quite let it get to 50. Um, you know, the, we've seen legal scholars, both pro-life and pro-choice saying that Roe and the case 19 years later, you know, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that they were not constitutionally sound, that they would not hold. And in fact, back in 2019, um, fall 2019, I was in Philadelphia on stage at the National Constitution Center debating the lawyer who argued the 1992 case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And, and she said, you know, this is the court that will overturn Roe. Um, that was before Justice Amy Coney Barrett ascended to the court. She already, mm -hmm. you know, she was reading the tea leaves. And, and I thought, you know, perhaps she was too hopeful at the time. You know, up until really the draft leak, I think a lot of us thought maybe she's too hopeful. We hoped, we prayed. Um, of course, it's not hope on her end. She, she was, uh, you know, raising the, the warning. But, um, you know, we can get into the intricacies of Roe v. Wade and abortion jurisprudence, but I think the key, especially since Roe's reversal, is just to understand that the so-called right to abortion was, from the beginning, totally fabricated. It was just pulled out of thin air, um, and Roe anchored this, this thin air right to abortion in the notion that the uh, post-Civil War anti-slavery amendments, um, especially that an amendment whose purpose was to establish that all persons, black or white, really are persons, that somehow this anti-slavery um, amendment also conferred the right to abortion, that it conferred the right to killing. Um, so if you look at Joseph Delapena's magnum opus, um, Dispelling the Myths of Abortion History, it does so much to explain why the Roe court simply did not know what it was talking about, um, trying to anchor a right to abortion and a right to privacy, just, you know, just crafting, concocting 
a right um, out of whole cloth. Um, but even worse, the ahistorical account that Roe conjured, it was belied by the reality that anti-abortion law was a reality throughout America in the 19th century uh, when those anti-slavery amendments were passed. And that we can trace the law's hostility to the evil of abortion back to um, as far as about the year 1200 in the common law. Uh, it was it was just, it, I, if I can say, just insane what the court did in Roe. They wanted a particular outcome. They had decided on the end. They wanted to normalize abortion. They wanted to, to normalize its violence and its self-harm. And they relied on serial means, fictitious histories. Um, they relied on abortion activists, um, upside down accounts of reality, and on research that wouldn't even earn a passing grade in most graduate seminars. And so the result here has been a half century of killing, 63 million or more dead, and a national crisis over abortion that rose reversal really only partially resolves. You know, Dobbs is is the first step. It's almost like the the starting bell, right? Um, because Dobbs, it, it was it was about a Mississippi pro-life law. It led to this case coming before the US Supreme Court. And in this case, Mississippi had enshrined a law that protects preborn children at 15 weeks of gestational age. And then we saw these abortion activists coming and litigating to um, to enjoin, to stop the law from going into effect based on Roe and Casey abortion precedents. And just a note there, um, so there have been many, many U.S. Supreme Court cases on abortion, dozens and dozens more in the lower courts, um, dozens at any given time, in fact, um, making their way up through the court system because it takes a long time to get a case to the Supreme Court. But on average, the U.S. Supreme Court has heard a case on abortion, directly on abortion, every two, two and a half years. So there are many abortion cases. Hmm. Um, but the two most important before Dobbs were Roe and Casey. And so um, the abortion proponents, they said, well, based on Roe, based on Casey, this Mississippi law that ends abortion at 15 weeks, you know, second trimester, that that should be unconstitutional. And I want to just point out here that 15 weeks even, that's still more abortion. It's more radical than almost any other nation in the world. You know, we're among the top four most radical nations in the world. It's us, Canada, China, North Korea um, on abortion law. And most of Europe, for example, has a 12-week limit. Into the first trimester, they cut it off. But Mississippi said 15-week. Almost every American agrees with that. And abortion proponents, they said, nope, we don't like that. We're going we're gonna to sue. Made its way through the court system, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case. And it signaled that it would very narrowly consider the issue of whether all pre-viability bans were unconstitutional, uh, meaning whether all pro-life protections that would protect a child prior to about 21, 22 weeks of age, his current viability, were unconstitutional under the Roe and Casey abortion precedents. So this, this Mississippi law, this 15-week law, clearly under 21, 22 weeks of age, and you know, setting up this um, this conflict before the court, this question about whether you could pass a pre-viability ban. Um, and that was what the court was going to hear. You know, just can you pass a law prior to 2021 20, weeks? But to the massive credit right. of, um, of Mississippi and of Lynn Fitch, their, their brilliant attorney general, Mississippi didn't just, didn't only argue on those narrow terms. They didn't just say, 
that their law was okay under the Roe regime and that the Supreme Court should let states protect life at an earlier point in the child's life. Like, yes, let us, you know, go further than viability, but Roe is okay. Instead, Lynn Fitch in Mississippi, they went further. They said not only that their law was constitutional, but they also said that the court should take this opportunity to reverse um, Roe and Casey, you know, and really that whole abortion juris, uh, jurisprudence, um, Roe, Casey, and all their progeny entirely. Mississippi argued, in fact, that, that Roe was, in effect, a constitutional disaster, that it was a wreck, and that the best thing for the court to do was to right its wrong and to restore constitutional justice on the abortion issue, empowering not only Mississippi, but every state to embrace the human right to life. And, uh, and this shouldn't be a surprise because, again, for 50 years, 49 years, legal scholars had been telling us, even the pro-choice ones, that Roe was a constitutional disaster and that the wrong would need to be righted. That's what the court tried to do in 1992 in the Casey case. Um, but Dobbs is the case that Casey wasn't. And so that all brings us to what was actually held in the final Dobbs decision. Um, the takeaways here, um, abortion is not a constitutional right. Um, simply that's, that's what Dobbs said. If I had to boil it down to just one sentence, abortion is not a constitutional right. Um, Dobbs clarified that the constitution has nothing to say about abortion and that abortion is not only inconsistent with America's history and tradition, um, going through that analysis that the Roe court failed to do, the Casey court failed to do, um, that the court has done in other contexts for example, assisted suicide, um, but they had not in the abortion context. And, um, and Dobbs also clarified that abortion harms what Roe called potential life, um, but what the state of Mississippi called unborn human life. Um, so I, I can walk you through some key parts of the decision. Mm -hmm. And um, if you want, you can stop me anytime if you want to dig, dig further, if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So Dobbs declares that, and I'll just, I'll read here verbatim. I, I have it pulled up in front of me. Um, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. That's actually a quote from Washington v. Glucksburg, one of those assisted suicide cases that did go through um, this analysis um, that Roe and Casey right. did not. And the court goes on to say, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. Um, now, three of the justices dissented here. Um, there were concurrences as well, though. So I'll walk you through um, three concurrences that each have a, a bit of a different perspective. Uh, so in his concurrence, Justice Thomas mm -hmm. focused on how the abortion right emerged 
as a distortion of substantive due process. Um, it says the resolution of this case is thus straightforward because the due process clause does not secure any substantive rights. It does not secure a right to abortion. And he goes on, even if the clause does protect unenumerated rights, the court conclusively demonstrates that abortion is not one of them under any plausible interpretive approach. Now, Justice, Justice Kavanaugh also concurred. He clarified that the judiciary is not the proper forum for deciding the abortion issue and reiterating that stare decisis did not prevent overturning Roe and Casey. So he wrote, the Constitution is neutral, and this court likewise must be scrupulously neutral. So when the Roe court chose one side of the abortion issue, he says that it distorted the nation's understanding of this court's proper role in the American constitutional system and thereby damaged the court as an institution. He said this is an issue for the people. So Kavanaugh was saying not only that uh, the case was wrongly decided, but that you know we've been hearing since Dobbs about the legitimacy of the court it was actually Roe v. Wade that attacked the legitimacy of the court. Yes, and in fact, the the majority opinion it went into that. It um, it actually got into those political questions and said, in essence, um, in fact, if you give me one second, I can bring it up because it's it's quite good. The court said. We cannot exceed the scope of our authority under the Constitution, and we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences, such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. We do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overturning Roe and Casey. And even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job which is to interpret the law, apply longstanding principles of stare decisis, and decide this case accordingly. So the court recognized that there would be fallout from this, but they said, we are apolitical. We are not part of that process. It's, it's Roe that got us into it. And then all of its progeny kept us in the political sphere. We're taking ourselves out of it. This is an issue for the people. And the dissenters basically said, this is... Uh you're overturning the expectation of people of the last 50 years, and, and that's bad policy, right? Basically, yes. It, it was similar to um, to what the court said in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, when they said um, that they used, they looked at the stare decisis factors, and they, they relied heavily upon what's called the reliance interest to do so. And what the reliance interest is, is this idea that people rely on a prior decision and have ordered their lives, you know, based on that decision. Right. So in essence, what the court said is that women rely on abortion in our life, that we can't succeed. We can't compete on a level playing field with men without access to legal abortion. They told us that we can't plan for our education, our careers, our families, our futures without access to legalized abortion. And it's hard to think of a less equal rights-based argument than that, you know, the, that we have to essentially, you know, sterilize ourselves to participate in business or in government or civil society or, or anywhere else, that we have to change who we are instead of acknowledging that we can fully participate in the fullness of who we are. Oh, that's interesting. You're saying that uh, that that position is the misogynistic position. It 100% is. If you're telling us that we have to change, that we have to, you know, become more like men 
in order to uh, to work or whatever. It's like when Citibank says that they'll, you know, that they'll send their employees to states where they can get abortions anytime they want. You know, it, I wonder why. It's because it's easier for them. There's no maternity leave or anything. You know, they get a, a better, you know, quote unquote, more productive workforce, but it makes us less human and less humane in the process. Now, I, w- I would also point out, though, that the that the dissent did admit that abortion is not deeply rooted um, in our nation's history. The dissent admitted that that abortion wasn't, you know, wasn't recognized pre Roe, and they didn't dispute that there was a trend of criminalizing pre-quickening um, that existed from, you know, the mid 1800s. But, but they said that, you know, that doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It, it really doesn't matter. There was yeah. no real serious discussion of the legitimacy of the state's interest in protecting fetal life. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't want to address the heart of the issue. They just basically said, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a new right. It doesn't matter if there's no history or tradition. It doesn't matter if, you know, it, anything, you know, state's interest, nothing. Um, and they even, you know, said that, you know, that, that children in the womb lack even the most basic human right to live, at least until some arbitrary point in pregnancy is passed, you know, viability, or they could, they could change that. It's made up from the beginning. No one briefed viability. No one asked for viability as the standard. The court, you know, 30 years ago, just made it up. They said, well, That's we'll, for we'll come up with some solution yeah. that'll maybe make people happy. And they quickly found out that their political solution didn't make anyone happy. Yeah, the the uh, effort in Roe back uh, in the early seventies was actually not to obtain a national uh, constitutional right. It was much more limited. But the Supreme Court decided to do that on their own uh, um, authority, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, what I find interesting, as you know, I'm I've been deeply involved in the euthanasia and anti-assisted suicide cause. Mm-hmm. That the primary uh, precedent in this case is Glucksburg v. Washington, uh, which was an attempt by assisted suicide advocates to actually create an assisted suicide Roe v. Wade. Uh, I filed an amicus brief as a lawyer for the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force in that case. And the irony is it lost, well, not only that it lost nine to zero, but it actually became the basis for overturning Roe. So the effort to expand Roe to areas outside of abortion ended up becoming mm-hmm. the precedent that destroyed Roe. I really love that. It, it, it's poetic justice for me because um, we've seen this rise in attempts to devalue human life. Um, we saw it in Roe v. Wade. We've seen that in all the abortion cases. We see it in, in the euthanasia and the assisted suicide context and so many other ways in our society. And so for, um, you know, it, it was almost, you could almost see it, you know, playing out in advance because we knew, I've been sharing for, for years, ever since um, he rose to the court, that Justice Kavanaugh has uh, a great respect for former Chief Justice Rehnquist, and in particular for his Glucksburg analysis. And as I have said for years, that's the analysis that Roe did not do. It's that same analysis that Justice Alito goes through here and the court goes through and um, and just really lays out how abortion is not deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions. And in fact, in in Dobbs, they actually said Roe should have engaged this issue and found the exact same Mm -hmm. uh, determination in Roe that 
the court did in Glucksburg. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I, I read your piece on this in National Review recently. It was a, a really funny, though a dark headline, How Assisted Suicide Euthanized Roe v. Wade. Uh, loved that. Um, but you know, Glucksburg was such an important case. Not only did it repudiate the idea of a constitutional right to suicide, but it repudiated it nine to zero. Um, and really, Dobbs should have been a nine to zero decision as well. And, and really, you know, Roe should have been a nine zero, but affirming the human right to life. Um, but Glucksburg was really key because the court learned to look to America's history and tradition on the issue as an interpretive framework for resolving whether a right truly existed. And um, and Glucksburg said, attitudes have changed uh, over time, but our laws have consistently condemned and continue to prohibit suicide. Um, and that's basically what the court finally got right and applied to the issue of abortion in the Stobbs case. Let's talk about what comes next. Now that abortion is not uh, federally protected uh, throughout the country, uh, uh, and with the, with the Supreme Court saying it is officially neutral on the issue, uh, where do we go from here as a nation? The issue returns to the states for now. Um, for now, we, we will see states going their own way on abortion. We're going to see extreme pro-abortion states. Um, states that adopt John Calhoun's perspective that, uh, in effect, abortion represents a positive good. Um, the cost in human life and in diminished futures will be worse than ever um, in those states, at least. Um, but we're going to see other states, a majority, thankfully, at least 26 to start, who are going to embrace the human right to life in various ways. Um, you know, already we've seen um, close to a dozen states that have um, at least attempted to, to end abortion within their borders. We're seeing, you know, now courts getting involved and there's, there's some wrangling going on, but, um, but states are committed to protecting life. Um, unfortunately, the pro-abortion states, they have a lot of people living in them. You know, California alone has nearly 40 million citizens. So about two thirds of Americans today still live in what are effectively pro-abortion states where abortion violence will be worse than ever before. So this is, um, this is almost like a two steps forward, um, you know, one and a half steps back situation. Yeah, uh, to kind of quote, uh, uh, paraphrase from Churchill, it's not the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. Exactly. That's that's what we're looking at right now. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it's just begun. Um, but, you know, the repudiation of the flawed logic and the injustice of Roe, that was an important step um, for our principles. And so now we have to we have to work harder than ever before to put into even greater practice what we've been doing for decades as a pro-life movement, loving people and providing them every necessary resource, not only to choose life, but to achieve a life of thriving. And so our workload at Americans United for Life has tripled, quadrupled plus because, you know, we've been we've been the ones in the States for, you know, 51 years, you know, writing the model bills. Uh, adapting them, you know, working to get them passed, defending them, educating on them, you know, all of that work, it's even more possible than ever before. Dobbs lifted the cap. It's almost like there was a cap on uh, on what states could do. So that cap is now gone. And, um, and with a sky's the limit approach to protecting life, um, it really does depend on the states. We can now hold our elected representatives accountable for what they say or, or don't say or on what they do or don't do to protect life. And so with that in mind, we can make greater advances than ever before. 
um, to protect life state by state, community by community, and to put those resources in place so that, you know, women have um, what they need. They have the support, they have the options, they have the true choice that was lacking for so many of us. I'm thinking about what you said at the beginning of this interview about uh, retweeting uh, NARAL, a NARAL uh, executive's um, support for the Nats, the baseball team. And, and it, I think that's really something that is really important because if you look at California, look at Colorado, look at Vermont, New York, they're basically creating an absolute right to abortion at any time for any reason on the taxpayer's dime. And uh, Vermont uh, and Colorado have gone so far as to say that no uh, embryo or fetus has any rights. And that is independent of whether or not um, there's gestation ongoing. So in other words, they basically said that no unborn life has any rights that any born person needs to respect. And that opens the door to um, things such as uh, fetal ex- live fetal experimentation when there is such a thing as the artificial womb and things of that sort. Then you have other states, uh, Louisiana, Missouri, others that are saying, well, we're going to uh, Oklahoma, I believe, we're going to uh, have very strong restrictions on abortion. Some are saying they're they're yeah, without any time limit at all. So you've got a you've got a country that's really at cross purposes, and yet we have to find ways to to be with each other as fellow Americans. Have you thought about how to work towards that end? Yeah, um, I think it really kind of gets down to the idea of of division on the abortion issue. And in some ways we are divided by the abortion issue, but in a lot of ways, um, and I think the more fundamental ways we aren't, um, we're divided by what we call ourselves. We're divided, divided by identities. Uh, we're divided when we're asked to choose a, a pro-life or a pro-choice label. Um, but we're not nearly as divided on the actual issues on the heart of these debates. And when you, when you dig into these issues, Americans are overwhelmingly pro-life. Um, when you ask people, you know, are you pro-life, pro-choice? You know, it, it's about evenly divided, even a little bit more pro-choice than pro-life. Um, and it makes sense because the mainstream media um, promotes the pro-choice position. Uh, Hollywood promotes the pro-choice position. Uh, industry and you know, big business promotes the pro-choice position. Um, but when you start asking people, well, do you think abortion is a moral choice? then the answers start swinging towards the pro-life side. When you ask people specifics about their opinions on really anything relating to abortion, whether you're talking about gestational age limits, informed consent, you name it, um, then you see dramatic swings towards life, you know, 12-week limitations, true informed consent, ability to see the ultrasound, you name it, and you see um, 75%, 90% of Americans supporting pro-life policies, which is how, you know, a, a third of Democrats, um, would be classified as pro-life, you know, say that, you know, that they're pro-life based on their policies, you know, 21 million right there. Um, and, um, and, and you know, we conducted a joint national poll with, with YouGov just after the leak stops opinion back in May, because we wanted to get clarity on actual American attitudes on abortion, on personhood, on legal rights at the heart of the Supreme Court case. Um, but our findings surprised even me. 
it, you see some of the divide that you're talking about in some of the results. You know, a majority of Americans believe that abortion ends the life of the human before birth. Um, and a 55% majority um, believes that an unborn fetus is a person either at the moment that a woman becomes um, pregnant or within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, but the divide fades away when we get away from some of those more abstract, speculative questions to the concrete issues. Um, when the rubber really meets the road, suddenly pro-life supermajorities appear. An 86% supermajority of Americans um, believe that an unborn fetus is a person by the time the child is capable of surviving outside the mother's womb or from the point of biological viability apart from a child's mother. Uh, an 80% supermajority of Americans support rights for unborn children to be born, and an 89% supermajority support rights for unborn children to be protected from violence or assault, you know, fetal homicide type of laws. So only 14% of Americans believe that an unborn fetus doesn't become a person until birth. And on the topic of abolition, here was an extraordinarily encouraging finding. A 52% majority of Americans support the U.S. Supreme Court extending legal rights of personhood to unborn children. So we can build on these majorities and these supermajorities um, to even more over the next generation or more uh, to a place of true unity. Because most of the, the dissension, it's not in the American public. You know, we were talking about building bridges earlier. Uh, a lot of those bridges, they're in place. They're strong. It's just our political leaders that are being in part funded by the abortion industry. Um, it's, you know, big business. It's, you know, they're, you know, exerting pressure um, on, on big business. But most Americans, they recognize the truth. They look at the ultrasounds of their children and they see this is a child. This is not a clump of, of cells or a blob of tissue. This is a human being who can, you know, move around and yawn and suck its thumb, even in the womb. You know, we're talking about a human being here. And so this endless, this interminable division, that's not the American way. We can have a brighter, a united future. And that is exactly what Americans United for Life is building towards. Even as we recognize the realities in the present, we are building towards that, that brighter future. I think one of the major obstacles the pro-life movement faces is that many people believe that uh, pro-lifers care about uh, people or babies before they're born, but not after. Uh, I think that's going to be, just as I, I look at the current scene in the country, that's going to be a major uh, issue for pro-lifers to demonstrate that that's not true. Uh, and uh, perhaps there could be a, a way of coming together, uh, as you described, to support uh, pregnant women and uh, young families after they're born who are struggling. Do you see that as part now, now part of the pro-life agenda? Yeah. So back when I was in law school, I was involved in pretty much every extracurricular activity that there was. Among them, I was editor-in-chief of the student weekly newspaper. I was running the pro-life group and I was running the parents group. My now 15-year-old was right there with me in law school, attending the early learning center on campus, which I advocated for expanding. In other words, you had a you had a you had uh, facilities for young children so that uh, people with children could go to law school and take care of their kids. Exactly, exactly. Um, for students, for you know staff, for whomever, but um, but students got priority. 
And, uh, and I actually advocated with the law school administration. I met with the dean saying we need to expand it to accept more young young students, young children, and also accept them uh, a broader range because, you know, it started at, at 18 months. So, you know, uh, I, I was on the paper and one of my fellow newspaper editors came to me one day and said, you know, I had always believed that canard, um, if you will, that um, that the pro-life movement cares about babies before they're born, but not after, you know, we just care about the babies and, you know, right to birth, not right to life. But, you know, seeing you, seeing that you're running not only the pro-life group, but also the parents group, and you're, you're supporting policies that are going to make it easier for students to continue in law school, to, you know, be in law school, to study, to further their career and education, and also to parent you know, that really, that changed his mind. He recognized that we're not just pro-birth, or at least me. And the point here is that we can all live that out in our lives. We can all demonstrate in our lives that, you know, that we support people throughout the full spectrum of life. And we do that by being a, a resource, a sounding board, by standing for um, for policies that are going to support uh, women and partners and children and families. And we can also do it by pointing to reality. We can point to the reality that, um, that both federal and state law and policy and the response of Americans from nearly every community, uh, nearly every state and city and town in this, in this nation are doing something to provide real alternatives to abortion for women. Um, that includes a continuum of care um, over the course of years and not just hours or days. You know, pregnancy centers do not just shut off services the moment the baby is born right? Um, you know, it, it's a total lie. It's a complete partisan fabrication from abortion activists that just gets repeated ad nauseum. I've been really puzzled at the uh, attacks on uh, crisis pregnancy centers. I guess that's the term, uh, for example, in California to try to shut them down when actually they're what they're doing is they're supporting people who need help to have a child and and to provide them things with diapers and formula and uh, and uh, access to other supportive services. I've never understood the hostility towards those organizations. Literally just serving women, you know, providing diapers, you know, formula, baby formula, providing things like cribs or car seats, training on parenting and training on, in many cases, you know, uh, workforce. Help them get job skills. Exactly. Job skills training, you know, resume writing, you name it. There are so many different resources, you know, post-abortion counseling. That's where I got my post-abortion counseling, all different kinds of of resources. And in many cases, they go on until the child is five or 18. And, um, and they really walk through the whole journey with the woman. And you know, look, in a country where we're killing the preborn, um, we're killing maybe even born infants in some places has been normalized for so many years. I, I kind of get why people think that Americans don't care about babies after they're born. I, I kind of would get why people might think that Americans just don't care about people, full stop. Um, but the reality has been that it's it's the pro-abortion activists who often don't care about babies, either before or after they're born, if they're not wanted. Um, I, I'm just, I'm grateful that pro-life Americans and everyday people of goodwill who don't even consider themselves political, who reject labels, but those are the folks 
who step in and um, and really serve these women in need instead of just trying to you know codify Roe more abortion more talk about abortion. They're saying, what's the problem here and how do we fix it? Let's get to the root of it. And with those, you know, 3,000 life-affirming pregnancy resource centers in America, um, entirely volunteer for the most part, community-led, that's one of the great success stories of the otherwise dark Roe v. Wade era because they, they sprang up to support people in need when, you know, too often... Um, those people were being failed otherwise by the government that said, well, you can just get an abortion. Yeah. So, so even during the, uh, you know, row, there were a lot of abortions that didn't occur because of these centers, which perhaps explains the hostility. That's exactly right. I think by providing resources and options for women, um, by letting women know that, that there are you know, choices out there and there are life affirming choices that let them actually keep their child. Um, you know, that, that drove down the abortion numbers. We've seen that in the abortion rates declining to the point where we're now at the same rate as in 1972, the year before the Supreme court struck down every single state's abortion law. And so it, it impacted the bottom line for the abortion industry. I think that's a large part of the vitriol and the hate for pregnancy centers is that when you give women information, when you give women real options, when you let them know what the resources are out there, um, fewer and fewer choose abortion. You know, you let us see our ultrasounds, fewer and fewer women choose abortion. So the more information that pregnancy centers were providing and when they, when they were telling women, you know, we'll help you with your rent. We have a maternity home you can move into. Here's some formula. Here's some diapers. We'll help you find a job. All of that, it's truly empowering women, but it's impacting the bottom line for big abortion. And that was the problem for them. Yeah. I think the next uh, big issue is going to be, um, the uh, abortion pills and telemedicine of uh, women, uh, you know, perhaps not even meeting the doctor who prescribes them. Uh, have you pondered that question? And, and uh, does AUL have any thoughts on what to do about it, if anything? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the abortion pill is um, incredibly dangerous. Um, it has even a higher risk of hemorrhage of sepsis than surgical abortion. And it essentially ships these pills out to women and leaves them to self-abort, um, often delivering their child at home in the bathroom and into a toilet. These women are left to deal with the aftermath. Um, it has not only greater physical risks, but, you know, but it also carries very intense emotional and psychological um, weight and risks for the woman there as well, because it's a different thing when, when you're not just submitting, but you're actually doing the act that, um, that results in the death of your child that can, that can stay with you. Um, not to mention when you bring telemedicine into it, and then we're not even talking about a physical examination. We're not even talking about an ultrasound anymore. You're hoping that the information that, um, that the woman is providing is accurate, um, that she really knows it in terms of, you know, last menstrual period, in terms of gestational age. And even if her information appears perfectly accurate, we know that, you know, 
biology is unique. And so sometimes, you know, it, it's not as it appears. Sometimes you're farther along than you think you are. And so with no ultrasound, uh, no further, you know, physical exam, you can have ectopic pregnancies, life-threatening situations. You can have um, situations where the pregnancy is farther along than anyone realizes. That's extremely dangerous. You can have all kinds of different problems, uh, contraindications, etc., that just aren't being captured. Um, and you're leaving the woman to deal with that on her own. It's an incredibly um, risky and dangerous and all too often deadly situation um, that really needs to be banned. So we have model legislation on chemical abortion specifically um, and are working to, um, to end um, telemedicine, chemical abortions at a minimum, if not all chemical abortions, you know, depending on how far the state's willing to go, um, as well as to make sure that women are getting actual um, informed consent, um, the true information, you know, what happens next kind of information. All of this is critical when it comes to um, uh, to facing the, the threat of chemical abortion. The, the pro-choice movement would say, if I may play devil's advocate for a second, uh, that the reason those extreme uh, telemedicine and so forth efforts are, are being required is because pro-lifers are making abortion less easy to obtain. How do you respond to that? I just, I, I never tire of hearing the abortion industry's misinformation and lies. You know, for years they said that the pro-life movement and, and our laws were, um, were shutting down abortion facilities, and you know, in, in some cases maybe, but we have seen for years that they were making very well thought out business decisions about where they wanted to place their clinics. And so they were building mega centers instead of having, you know, little abortion facilities throughout the nation. A lot of reasons for that. You know, part of it's again, that bottom line is the overhead costs. Part of it's the fact that most doctors don't want to perform abortions. Yeah. That's a kind of a little secret that most people don't know about. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you ask doctors, do you want to perform abortions? Most say absolutely not. It goes against the Hippocratic Oath. But, you know, that with few doctors wanting to do it, with, you know, overhead costs, etc., they're not interested in putting an abortion facility on every street corner. They're not going to be doing that. So they already were making women drive, in many cases, hours at a minimum, um, just to get to that, you know, abortion access that they um, that they hold in such high regard. Same is true with with chemical abortion pills. You know, they um, following that model. Most Planned Parenthoods now, you know, a lot of them are not performing abortions. They're just sort of satellite centers that are dispensing chemical abortion pills that are giving referrals to the abortion mega center, but they're not doing the abortions on site. They don't want to be doing that. That's interesting. And so this is a business decision by them. In fact, one time is a few years ago. Um, I, I decided to pick um, a state that was, you know, relatively friendly towards abortion. Um, Maine, you know, not known for super pro-life policy. Um, and I, I just picked a spot upstate Maine. And I said, okay, if I live there and I wanted to get to um, I just dropped a pin on, on my little Apple map. I said, if I wanted to get to the nearest abortion facility, how far would I have to go? And the answer was you'd have to drive about 10 hours and the closest route, closest highway actually went through Canada. That's their decision. 
you know, they're choosing what to do with their facilities for the most part. Um, this is not a situation where the pro-life movement, I, I mean, I'll, I'll take it as a success, but they're the ones choosing to endanger women by shipping out abortion pills with no physical exam, with no ultrasound, with no oversight. They're just sending it out. And you hope that it's being taken appropriately, at least in the directed manner. We don't even know who's receiving these pills, if they're being received or by whom, or if they're being taken voluntarily or anything else. We just know that these pills are getting shipped out. It's very interesting. We're running out of time, and I wanted to share a, a quote from President George W. Bush that I'd like your response to. He was once asked whether he would support a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion. And as I recall, he said no, because if you ever get to the point that it could actually pass democratically, so many hearts would have been changed that it wouldn't be needed. Could you reflect on that for a second? Sure. We do support an amendment to clarify the existing constitutional reality the reality that abortion is incompatible with our constitutional order and that it's incompatible with constitutional justice. Now, we envision a constitutional amendment that's modeled on the success of the 13th Amendment to the effect that abortion shall not exist in the United States and empowering Americans through a private right of action to combat any corporate abortion interests that would perpetuate abortion. Now, I love the sentiment behind what President Bush had to say. I love that idea that if you could ever get to that point of, of an amendment, that so many hearts would have been changed that it wouldn't be needed. It, it's a beautiful sentiment. But all that said, the hearts of any generation can change like the wind. And, um, and rights aren't secure solely based on movements of the heart. We're human beings. We make mistakes. We make errors of judgment. We discern things poorly. We, we fail to reason consistently. We fail to live rightly and, and deliver justice properly. But the whole point of the law is that it helps to teach us how to live well and how to secure justice from generation to generation in the most naturally just sort of times and the most unnaturally hard-hearted of times. And so truly, you know, constitutional justice, it requires clear written law for our rights and responsibilities to be preserved. And, and we, we in America, we desperately need to resolve our heart and our soul on abortion in the model of Lincoln's warning on slavery that will either become all one thing or all the other. And we're also confronting the fact that very powerful corporate and financial and elite interests, both at home and abroad, have a very vested interest in perpetuating abortion violence. And, and it, as it was classically understood, the law was seen as a teacher, uh, a teacher of public mores, of public attitudes and sentiments. And then Roe is purported law. It taught millions of us to kill and to deny the humanity of our most vulnerable. And it wasn't sentiment that did that. It started with the law, incorrectly and unjustly imposed in Roe. And, and so the law really has the most crucial role to play in definitively resolving abortion and clarifying that abortion is incompatible with the Constitution and with the reality of human persons as being free and equal in dignity and rights and responsibilities. And so the law has to teach. It's either going to continue to teach indifference at best to abortion, or it will teach that abortion is something like a positive good. And we cannot allow ourselves to become John Calhoun's America on the issue of abortion. Just as the 13th Amendment was required to definitively resolve the injustice of slavery, you know, now and for all time, for, for today and for generations to come, to paraphrase Lincoln, 
But so too do we need constitutional clarity from both future Supreme Court jurisprudence as well as from that most definitive of all constitutional answers, uh, an amendment, explicitly and permanently securing our first and most fundamental of all human rights. Well, thank you for being with me. I, I'd love to have you back sometime as as uh, events unfold. I'm sure there'll be litigation in the various states. I know the uh, there's an attempt in the federal government to uh, have a national law that would uh, actually go way beyond uh, codifying Roe v. Wade, but create a, an absolute right to abortion, destroy medical conscience rights, and so forth. But we don't have time to get into that now, but I'd love to have you back at some point as events transpire. Thanks for coming on, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to join. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.